Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting March 21st. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, we'll go on an ocean voyage in search of buried treasure. Buried in the genomes of all the gazillions of tiny organisms that live in the ocean, we'll talk to Douglas Rush, the first author on the lead publication of the first group of papers to come out of the Global Ocean Sampling Expedition, a large genetic treasure hunt. We'll also talk about another research paper that came out last week that kind of dovetails nicely with the expedition material. That's a report about the continued importance of natural products for medicine. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some other recent science in the news. First up, Douglas Rush. He's a senior computational biologist at the J. Craig Venter Institute, the folks behind the Global Ocean Sampling Expedition, and I talked to him at his office in Rockville, Maryland. Hi, Dr. Rush. How are you today? I'm doing quite well. How are you, Steve? I'm fine, thanks. Good to talk to you. Tell us all about the Sorcerer 2 Global Ocean Sampling Expedition. What What is it? What are you looking for? What do you hope to find? This is an expedition to travel around the globe and explore the unseen world of microbial biology. Uh, that uh, All the microbes in the ocean, they're too small to be seen, and they've really never been comprehensively studied before. And I... I read in uh, your publication that this is actually, in a, in a way, inspired by a famous 19th century expedition. Yeah, that would be the Challenger expedition. They basically traveled around the globe looking at life under the ocean on the seafloor, and they would collect samples as they went, about every 200 nautical miles. And uh, obviously back then, they were only looking at macroscopic life, but you're looking at microscopic life. Mm-hmm. Well, back then... Everything below the water was a mystery, and no one knew the full extent of life. And so that was really the first grand expedition, one of these you know, attempts to really catalog all the life. And nowadays, well, we still don't know a lot about what's in the ocean, um, but technology is finally allowing us to look at the smallest inhabitants, the microbes, and even the viruses. And so that was uh, the goal of this expedition, is to really start to catalog all the genetic and uh, metabolic diversity that's out in the ocean. And why should we care about that stuff? Well, microbes play a key role in, in, in our world. They were probably the first organisms here on Earth. Well, they were the first organisms here on Earth, and they help to generate the atmosphere. They modify the water so that it's clean. I mean, the oxygen that we breathe, that's a direct result of them being there. They are photosynthetic, so they convert light into chemical energy, so that helps to drive the whole food chain that uh, supplies all the larger organisms, the fish and everything that we rely on. Uh, and if you go in other ways, they're intimately associated with just about every large organism you see out there. Nothing can live in the absence of these microbes, so they're just absolutely crucial for, for life. Do we even have an a reasonable estimate of how many species of microbial life are out there in the oceans? Oh, that that would be very difficult to answer. I, I think we're just starting to get an idea of how many microbes are out there. Um, in a single drop of water, there are a million microbes. And anywhere from 1,800 to 18,000 different species in a drop of water. But if you took the entire ocean the extent of that diversity um, is just enormous. And so we don't know. And that's part of the reason for doing this kind of expedition, is to start to get a handle on it. 
Now, have you personally been involved in the collection, or are you back home waiting for the samples to come in and then you do the analysis? Most of the time, I'm back home sitting at a computer analyzing the huge amount of data that comes through and trying to sift through it to find the interesting um, pieces. But I did get to go out on the boat on one particular occasion to, to understand how the sampling process takes place, and that helps to work on the paper and to think about um, the scientific procedures and results that we get. Tell us a little bit about the actual boat. How big is it? How many people are on it? Where is it? The boat right now, it's right out in the Sea of Cortez and collecting samples from a variety of different uh, interesting environments, and it'll be moving up to San Diego in the near future. Uh, the boat itself is a 95-foot uh, sailing vessel, and it's been modified in various ways to to uh, facilitate the research, and so that includes having the filtering um, apparatus and some refrigerators to store the samples, and it has a high-powered microscope so we can look at the at the organisms in the water. And how big of a crew do you need to, to operate that? It has four sailors on it, and then there's uh, at least one staff scientist and sometimes several other people are involved in in collecting and analyzing the samples at any given time. So this is this is so much better than being stuck in a lab all day, I would imagine. Well, you know, most of the time it is a lot better, but uh, when the weather gets rough out there, uh, it's not an easy thing to do. And, and the actual collecting, uh, the collection of a sample takes many hours. And so the one time I had to collect it, it I basically spent the entire night doing it. Uh-huh. And the seas were quite rough, and it was... Uh, not it, it. It's definitely hard work. The weather started getting rough. The tiny ship was tossed. <laughs> well, we didn't become stranded on some small deserted island, right. but <laughs> and it's much longer than a three-hour tour. Oh so, yes, yeah. So um, the samples come back to you in the lab, and what exactly are we looking for? This is uh, a genomic analysis. Uh, yes. So what happens is. Once the samples are collected, they're collected on several different filters that uh, pull out different sized organisms. And so we take, we've been working on the smallest of the microbes because their genomic content is also um, simpler to analyze using the currently available sequencing technology. And so then they come back, we build a library of their DNA, uh, and then we start sequencing it. And we're just, so this is, you know, millions or billions of organisms and we're looking at their DNA just kind of randomly looking through to see what we can find. And the abundant organisms we find lots of DNA and for the rare ones we find little bits and pieces that tell us something about them. Let me just uh, conjecture a little bit. I mean, I would think that the the kind of philosophical foundation here is that each one of these species, unique species, has has come up with its own kind of chemistry set or its own solution to life's problems and by sifting through all this stuff you might find some some ingredients that we can co-opt for our own chemistry set so that's uh that's a very astute statement in fact uh what we find is that there's tremendous amounts of diversity associated with these microbes far beyond i think what people would have initially expected and yes, they, they are excellent at, uh, finding solutions to their environmental problems, needs, um, 
And so this is a, they, they're expert chemists. They're better than uh, 10 PhDs on, on any individual basis. So, uh, and we can sift through this, their, their, the DNA to look for these interesting things, but we're discovering new genes, new variations on existing genes, new combinations of genes to, that, that allow them to survive and prosper in the ocean. And these papers that have just come out are the first papers that are the result of the expedition, but the expedition still has years to go. Well, yes. I mean, this is the first quarter of the sample, so there's three quarters of the global um, sampling expedition to still analyze and study, and then we're collecting additional samples even now, so this may be going on. And and where else is the boat going to be traveling to, to to collect samples? So right now we have a plan to go up along the west coast of the Americas, stopping in Alaska in the middle of summer, and then come back down the coast and repeat sample a number of the sites to see how they change over time. Can you, if you're comfortable, you know, go out on a limb a little bit? I mean, the thing is a, is a terrific intellectual adventure for its own sake, but would you just muse a little bit about the possible applications of, of any of the findings that may come along? Okay, um... It's always hard to prognosticate too far in advance. I mean, this really is basic research um, in many ways. Um, in the long run, though, uh, we're going to get a better understanding of, of microbial communities in the ocean and how they interact. And the hope is, if you understand these systems well enough, that someday we actually may be able to tweak them or manipulate them or reconstruct them in certain ways so they can be used to clean up uh, areas that have become uninhabitable because of maybe some toxic chemical spill. Um, we may be able to modify the microbial environment so that uh, the fish will be happier. It'll prevent um, fish infections or other things like that that could happen. Uh, in the really kind of pie-in-the-sky idea, but maybe some of the grandiose things is we figure out how to increase the rate of carbon fixation that occurs in the surface water. So that would be potential potential solution to um, CO2 buildup in the atmosphere and then global warming. You know, there's also the possibility that we'll learn something about how to convert sunlight into chemical energy, which may be very valuable um, as oil supplies dwindle. And any biomedical implications? Well, uh in the direct scheme of things, uh, it gives us a better understanding of the pathogens that are in the ocean. These have a direct impact on, on the life of the fish and on the people who eat the fish. So if we can recognize these organisms, we may be able to treat them better or know when or when not to collect fish. Uh, there's also the ability to identify biomedically useful proteins like antibiotics may come out of this. Uh, microbes are constantly at war with each other. So we may be able to pick up a few tricks from that. Uh, and in the long run, there's just so many different proteins out there. And a lot of these proteins are shared in common with um, humans and other organisms that we're much more familiar with, birds, plants, animals. Um, and so they have come up with new variations on these, and that may teach us something about how our bodies function or how these proteins work. And so we may be able to find ways to cure cancer or do something else. But those are very long-term um, research prospects. Sure. Uh, this this might be a little bit inside baseball, but 
what uh, what drove your decision to publish in the Public Library of Science? So there's a number of reasons. Partly, it's the idea that PLOS is open to everyone, that we really want this, this information to be freely available to all the researchers. But it's also very practical. There's so much information that we've uncovered that it would take us 100 years to really start to make sense of it. But by bringing in and making this freely available to the entire scientific community, not just in the United States, but around the globe, because a lot of countries don't have large scientific budgets. They don't. They can't spend a lot of money to get all these journals. So now they can interact with this data freely and work with it, and that will increase the pace of discovery and uh, hopefully bring practical results out of this data sooner than later. And anything jump out at you in this first batch of uh, of results? Perhaps the most uh, interesting thing. I mean, I'm really just bowled over by the diversity this year. Any kind of way that you can have variation appears to occur in the ocean. The idea of what a species is is going to be is fundamentally under debate now in the scientific community because these results and other similar results are are suggesting that that we just have no idea of how to categorize uh, microbial organisms and. Just the, I mean, so this is diversity in the sense that at the base pair SNPs, which are the same things that make two people different from each other, are rampant in microbial communities. But then they also have different genes. They have different genome, genomic architectures. So everything that can change is changing. Um, maybe, maybe one of the other things that was really exciting about this was finding how the environment impacts the microbial communities and how they adapt to that. So that's going to give us a, I think in the long run, a much better understanding of how um, genetic, the com- combination of genes and organisms interact with the environment and what factors in the environment are important to life on Earth. And is do you get that information because you see the same organisms in slightly different environments and you see how their, their uh, protein expression differs? So we haven't actually looked at protein expression, but the gene content varies from spot to spot, even though the communities are very similar. So you actually will see some genomic evolution taking place in with minor environmental changes in, in what appear to be the same species. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you wouldn't be able to tell these organisms apart other than one group of them is missing this gene and another group has the gene. And yeah. then that is directly related to the change in the environment. Uh-huh. Very interesting. Well, it sounds like you've got uh, the rest of your life to work on this. <laughs> oh, yes, it could, this could easily take a lifetime to, to analyze. Well, but we're not done now, so there'll be even more data. Well, I, I've taken enough of your time since you have so much work to do. So, Dr. Rush, thank you very much. Really appreciate talking to you. All right. Thank you, Steve. It's been a pleasure. For a lot more, go to the website of the Public Library of Science. That's www.plos.org. Then hit the link for the journal PLOS Biology. You'll find an entire section called A Collection of Articles from the J. Craig Venter Institute's Global Ocean Sampling Expedition, including more research results, editorials, posters, videos, and journalistic features. There's a really interesting piece on the important ethical and legal issues involved in this effort, as the article notes, quote, what for one person is pure marine scientific research can be another person's bioprospecting and yet another's biopiracy, end quote. Interesting stuff all at www.plos.org. Mm-hmm.
Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories with a foodie theme this week. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, Americans are eating more fruits and vegetables. Story two, people have been engaged in all kinds of activities, including driving and eating while under the influence of sleeping pills. Story three, soy appears both to inhibit and promote prostate cancer. And story four, an April visitor to the space station will be served roast quail and other Gourmandi extravagances. We'll be back with the answer, but first I want to talk a little about another research report coming out this week. It appears in the March 23rd issue of a publication of the American Chemical Society, the Journal of Natural Products. The lead author is David Newman. He's the chief of the natural products branch of the Developmental Therapeutics Program. That's a combined effort of the National Institutes of Health and the National Cancer Institute. The paper is called Natural Products as Sources of New Drugs Over the Last 25 Years. You know, drugs have always come from nature. The most famous example is probably aspirin, derived from willow tree bark. The anti-cancer drug Taxol famously comes from the Pacific yew tree. It wound up being developed when Susan Horwitz at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx realized that the molecule interfered with cell division in a unique way by interfering with microtubule assembly. And there there are also reports of of chimpanzees self-medicating with uh, natural products and leaves they'll eat when they have a particular condition they'll uh they'll actually search out particular leaves that uh, apparently they know have some kind of a compound of efficacy in them anyway botany and medicine used to be pretty much the same discipline for us humans and as we got more sophisticated in our abilities to perform chemical analysis we were able to discover and isolate the particular molecules that other organisms have come up with that coincidentally have effects on our biochemistry. Plants were always a good bet, but we're now paying more attention to microbes and even animals. The paper mentions a glucose controller for diabetics that's based on a peptide found in the venom of the Gila monster, of all things. The report discusses the continued importance in medicine of molecules that nature has come up with, even in the age of combinatorial chemistry, that was expected to come up with new and novel compounds with medical potential that are not related necessarily to natural products. The authors note that of the drugs that have been approved for use in the last quarter century, about 70% are still derived from natural products. The authors play a little fast with the numbers, but only a little, because some of the natural products have been tinkered with during research to enhance their inherent properties when they're being turned into a drug. For example, maybe you alter the solubility or make the molecule bind a little tighter by fooling around with the original natural chemical structure just a little bit. But it's probably a legitimate approach to credit such compounds in the natural products column because they wouldn't be in use at all had not the original natural chemical been found to have some kind of property of interest. Newman, the lead author, notes in a news article that appeared on our website that only two big U.S. pharmaceutical companies dedicate substantial efforts to looking at natural products, despite all the evidence that it's a fruitful way to do drug development. Here's something from the discussion section of the paper. Quote, the continued and overwhelming contribution of natural products to the expansion of the chemotherapeutic armamentarium is clearly evident and much of nature's treasure trove of small molecules remains to be explored, particularly from the marine and microbial environments, end quote. So you can see why I thought this paper dovetailed with the global ocean sampling expedition discussion. The authors also wrote, quote, 
we wish to draw the attention of readers to the rapidly evolving recognition that the significant number of natural product drugs or leads are actually produced by microbes and or microbial interactions with the host from whence it was isolated. And therefore, we consider that this area of natural product research should be expanded significantly, end quote. All the species on Earth, even the microscopic ones, have come up with unique chemical solutions to the challenges of being alive. So rather than reinvent the wheel, or in this case the aromatic hydrocarbon ring, we might as well let these excellent chemists, tiny though they may be, do most of the work for us. As Douglas Rush just said a few minutes ago of the ocean microbes. They're expert chemists. They're better than uh, 10 PhDs on, on any individual basis. To find the paper Natural Products as Sources of New Drugs over the last 25 years, just Google the Journal of Natural Products. That paper comes out March 23rd. Our news story on the SIAM website ran on March 19th, and that was titled Mother Nature Still a Rich Source of New Drugs. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, Americans are eating more fruits and vegetables. Story two, people eating and driving despite sleeping pills. Story three, soy inhibits prostate cancer except when it's promoting prostate cancer. And story four, space station visitor to be served gourmet meals. Time's up. Story four is true. Software billionaire Charles Simonyi gets launched to the International Space Station on April 7th, where he'll dine on roast quail, breast of duck, shredded chicken parmentier, whatever that is, and other culinary extravagances. That's according to the story on our website titled Space Station Guests Meal Plan, Roast Quail to Go. The menu was created for Simone by Martha Stewart, rumored to be his girlfriend. Whatever he eats up there, it'll probably taste tangy. Story three is true. Soy appears to both promote and inhibit prostate cancer. That's according to a big Japanese study of over 43,000 men eating a traditional diet rich in soy. The paradox seems to be that soy will inhibit prostate cancer from developing in the first place. But if it does develop, soy's isoflavone compounds may then encourage the cancer to grow and spread. The study appears in the March issue of Cancer Epidemiology, Biomarkers, and Prevention. And story two is true. All kinds of reports have surfaced about people engaged in wakeful activities while on sleeping pills. These include driving, internet shopping, eating, sex, and making phone calls while the people thought they were asleep. The FDA announced last week that 13 drugs will receive new warning labels alerting people to the slight possibility that they could wind up in a car in their pajamas. How the car got in their pajamas, I'll never know. All of which means that story one about Americans eating more fruits and vegetables is totally bogus, because a new study found that our consumption of fruits and vegetables is still woefully under the five recommended servings a day, and veggie consumption actually dropped slightly lately. For more, check out the Monday, March 19th edition of the Daily Scientific American podcast, 60 Second Science, on which I said, this is an apple. It's good for you. Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Scientific American Podcast. You can write to us at podcast.siam.com. Check out news articles at our website, www.siam.com. And the daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science, is at the website and at iTunes. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. <laughs>